Most of us at one time or another try a sport, but only a tiny fraction become so good that we call them elite, the best of the best. Most get there through an incredible work ethic that starts as a child and usually dominates their young lives, often at the expense of their education and social lives. For most, the blood, sweat, and tears results in just a few years at the top of that mountain. What then? Have these elite athletes prepared for life after the glory? This podcast celebrates the lives of these elite athletes through conversation stories and a few laughs along the way. And now your hosts, Lucy Sang and Gary Stern. On this edition of After the Glory, we are privileged and proud to welcome an NBA Hall of Famer, a college basketball Hall of Famer. Rick Barry ranks as one of the most prolific scorers and all-around players in basketball history the only one to lead the NBA, uh, the NBA, the NCAA, and the ABA in points per game in a season. He ranks as the all-time ABA scoring leader in regular season and postseason play. Uh, he is the only player to reach the 50-point mark in a game seven of the playoffs in either league, one of only four players to be part of a championship team in both leagues. This is Gary Stern along with Lucy Seng, and we are honored to welcome to our show, Rick Berry. Rick, great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I wish everybody all the best after we've gone through all of this insanity with the uh, scamdemic, which I call it, and which it really is, but I'm not going to get into that because I don't like to talk politics. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Go ahead, Luce. Well, Mr. Berry, let me jump in Rick, and Rick, just... Rick, 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 please. Call me. Rick, you got Thanks. it. You got it. Rick, let me jump in and ask you, you know, it's clear to us that you started your childhood as a baseball fan and, you know, one of your favorite players is Willie Mays. Can you tell us when you discovered your talent and gift of basketball? Maybe what age and was there a game that particularly drew you towards basketball for the rest of your life? Uh, well, I, I I did everything my older brother Dennis did. So when he was nine, he got involved in basketball. My father was a semi-pro player and coach. And he coached the parochial uh, elementary school. It was called grammar school back in those days. And and so when my brother wanted to do it, I wanted to do it. So I was five years old when I really started getting into basketball. And when my brother was in the eighth grade and, and back then grammar school again, uh, I was in the fifth grade and I actually made the team. So I played on the eighth grade team when I was in the fifth grade. So I just knew I had talent in basketball, but my real first love was baseball because that's what my dad taught me how to do. And I was a huge, as you've mentioned, Willie Mays fan. Willie was a rookie. When I learned, my father showed me how to catch this basket catch down over here. Like, you know, I'll show you down here, right here, right here. Boom. Like Willie Mays came in as, oh, that's my guy. So I, I picked a good one. Um, right. And so uh, I was a huge fan of his. I was actually a better baseball player in high school than I was a basketball player and made all state a couple of seasons. But I, I, when I got to basketball, it was actually a junior varsity baseball coach that really kind of pushed me that way because he wouldn't let me play when I didn't pitch. I said, coach, uh, I want to play when I don't pitch. I'm batting 500 better than anybody on the team. I can play every position. I don't want to catch. I learned that at a very early age. I said, but I want to play. And so the next game I pitch, I go one for two. And the next game, I'm on the bench. So I said, that's it. I'm done. So I, I left, you know, and said, I'm not going to do it. And I went and focused all my energies on basketball, which turned out to be a good thing. And then the varsity coach the next year as a junior asked me if I would play baseball. And I said, sure. If you're going to let me play when I don't pitch, he says, oh, definitely, you'll play. You know, if you're not pitching, you'll be playing. I said, okay, great. And so I played center field. But I realized in center field, of course, Willie Mays, 
<laughs> you know, I might not get a ball hit to me the whole game. I'm an A-type personality. Baseball is just too slow for me. And so I said, well, let's see. The only way I could do that, when I was younger, I Little League, I did pitch. And I did play first base. And so I switched over to play first base and pitch. So that way, at least I know I'm going to get a little bit of action. Because, I mean, heck, two innings, you can sit there. If, if the other they're retiring all your hitters, you don't even get up for two innings. Because <laughs> you sit there and you do nothing and twiddle your thumbs. So um, so I made All-State those two years playing baseball. And and then uh, – but I really focused all my energies on on basketball and just enjoyed it that you know so much more because of – the activity you're constantly doing something it's it's uh, it's a much more fun game to play at least for me it was and you went on to the university of miami and there was obviously a background and a reason that you gravitated toward and ultimately accepted the offer uh from in terms of recruiting to go to university of miami why what, what was it about university of miami and did you end up being happy with your decision uh, well, first of all, I went there because it was as far away as I can get from New Jersey and be there in the wintertime in nice warm weather. So that was the number one reason. But the actual biggest reason was the fact that I had a high school coach that I was going to quit basketball. He just made life miserable. Uh, screamer, holler, yeller. I don't need that. I don't need extra motivation. I mean, nobody could be more upset with me than I am when I make a mistake. And I knew when I made a mistake because I was taught how to play the game the right way. And so my father and brother had to talk me into not quitting and because they said, well, you can get a scholarship. This is great. So I had to tolerate playing for this man. And um, it was difficult to say the least. Um, and so I wanted to have a coach that I liked. And Bruce Hale, who was the coach at the University of Miami, I never went to visit. I did get to meet him. I get to go see their team play in Madison Square Garden in the NIT tournament. I love the style of basketball that they played. He was a former pro player. And, and, and I love the, the living facilities and stuff that they had in Miami where I was on, on campus in, in an apartment, basically, with a roommate and two other roommates and two, you know, two bedrooms with two guys in each bedroom with a living dining room and kitchens, which was really kind of cool, as opposed to some other school where you, you live in a room and, you, you know, everybody has to go to the hallway down the, down the hallway to go ahead and share the same bathroom and everything. So I kind of liked it and I liked the warm weather. And so I made the decision to uh, to go there, and it was probably the best decision I could have made basketball-wise because it was like going into the minor leagues and for four years in training because back then you couldn't leave school early. You couldn't even play varsity as a freshman. And so I had um, I had the good fortune of playing on a team that was fun to play on with a great coach who taught me a great deal and helped prepare me for the NBA. And it's rare that a player comes out of college, even in today's world, and first of all, they don't stay four years, the majority of them, but to come out and go into the pros, everybody says, oh, yeah, he was rookie of the year. I said, hey, yeah, well, that's nice. I said, but I was first team all pro as a rookie, which is a hell of a lot better than being the rookie of the year. Uh, I mean, first team all pro my first two years. And I credit that to all of the great teaching I had from my dad, or dad my brother, and especially my, my coach in college, Bruce Hale, who really taught me what I needed to do and to be prepared properly to play at the NBA. And to be honest, it was easier for me to play in the NBA than it was in college, mainly because in college, the entire defense of the teams we played was geared to shut me, try to shut me down. I played, you know, box and ones. I played, you know, triangles and twos. When I went to the NBA, I said, oh my God, I only have one guy guarding me. This is unbelievable. <laughs> so it was kind of fun to be able to go and, and not have to worry about two or three guys guarding you all the time. And then I got to play with a great point guard and Guy Rogers because I could run. Uh, I was very quick, very fast, which is a big difference between the two. I was both quick and fast and we actually beat our guards in sprints. And 
I knew that Guy Rogers liked to get assists back in those days. He was an assist point guard, not the scoring point guard that came along years and years later. Uh, I liked to play with the passing point guard first. And um, so I got a lot of easy baskets because the guy would run the floor and a guy would get the ball to me and we played an up-tempo style. And so it was a lot of fun. Um, and then I went on from there and the next year I had an opportunity to be more involved in the offense and wound up leading the league in scoring because I had a very aggressive attitude. My, my father said, son, when you get the ball, you want to try to attack and score. Provided one thing. You don't have a teammate in a better position. You don't play selfishly. And so that's the way I approach the game. When I got the ball, I was coming at you. I'm trying to go ahead and beat you and try to get to the basket and score or take a shot and try to create things for my teammates, which I actually got more satisfaction out of doing than scoring myself. And so that attitude really helped me a lot. And that's one of the reasons I used, I used to joke about it, you know, when, hey, you led the NCAA, the ABA, the NBA in scoring. I said, well, if you take enough shots, you can score. <laughs> When we come back on After the Glory, we will talk to Rick about his life in professional basketball and how he's established himself as a professional and basketball legend. University Credit Union has been providing a financial edge to members for over 70 years. Now you can earn more with University Credit Union. Earn up to 5% APY with a university checking account for the banking that you already do. You'll save more when you switch your deposits and loans to University Credit Union. Bank with your brain. Visit ucu.org to join today. Federally insured by NCUA, terms and conditions apply. Hey, this is Lucy Sang from Resiliency Coaching. I am a certified mental performance coach focused on working with athletes transitioning into life after the glory days of sports. I help like-minded people become high performers and thrive in all areas of life. My goal is to serve as your accountability partner and offer different perspectives as you make tough decisions. Learn more about me on Instagram at resiliency underscore coaching R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-S-E-E underscore coaching. And thanks for tuning in to After the Glory. And we're back on After the Glory. This is Gary Stern with Lucy Seng and our very special guest, Hall of Famer Rick Berry. Rick, you had perhaps one of the most eclectic, um, incredible careers. As I've read through everything and skimmed through the autobiography from 1972, um, what occurred to me is that in many respects, you revolutionized the game before the game was perhaps ready for you. Uh, I, I saw somebody compare you to the modern uh, great from the Warriors, Stephen Curry. Um, I also thought to myself, my goodness, this is a six, seven forward who can play the guard position like Magic did many years later. Um, there were so many aspects of your game starting in 1965 that foretold the basketball of later. And one of the questions that that raises for somebody like me in doing the research, how much of what I read on social media, how much of what I read in articles from uh, Sports Illustrated, you made the cover of Sports Illustrated multiple times, how much is true and how much was overblown, overstated, or just flat out false? How long does this show go? <laughs> yeah well first of all anybody with any semblance of intelligence realizes that you should not believe everything that you read uh, because it's an opinion of the person who's writing it and unfortunately there were things that were written about me that were so wrong and so such a disservice to me 
that some of these writers still owe me uh, an apology. In fact, one in particular, I've never really even met him. Uh, when I do meet him, he should apologize to me uh, because of what uh, what he wrote about me. But yeah, I was portrayed as this horrible person that everybody on my team hated. I was. It, it's just, it, I learned to live with it. Um, it, it was. It's part of the world of uh, of sports and journalism. But I don't expect. I don't respect the journalists who don't find out what two sides of the story are. They're they're entitled to their opinion just like anybody else is. But you shouldn't have an opinion if you only look at one side. You need to have both sides analyze it and then make an opinion. And a lot of writers don't do that. Well, here's what I noticed, Rick. Wherever you went, winning followed. In and the evidence is just overwhelming. Uh, NBA championship in uh, in 1975, ABA championship in 1969. The team that you would start playing with, let's say coming back from injury, would increase its win total by a factor of two or three. Wouldn't it be fair to say that the evidence is in the fact that where you went, winning followed? Yeah, but you know, here's the thing. It's not because of me. It's it, you got to get lucky. This is why when people rate players and, and they try, it's just amazing to me how they do this. I mean, first of all, everybody does this thing: the greatest of all time, the goat. Back when I played, the goat was the guy that screwed up. Okay, now it's the greatest of all time. <laughs> there is no such thing in a team sport as the greatest of all time. It has to be by position. I don't know why somebody wants to compare Will Chamberlain to Steph Curry or or Magic Johnson or somebody. Different positions require different skills. So you want to have a debate about who's the best at a position, fine, have the debate. But these guys all want to come on. Oh, he's the greatest ever. This guy. No, Michael Jordan is not better than Will Chamberlain. Michael Jordan's better than the other twos that play the game, but he's not better than Will Chamberlain. He's not better than the big players who play the power forward spot or the LeBron James of the world. Or the, you know, I mean, it's just crazy. So, and then they give extra points when I see some of these ratings. I'm going, what? Extra points because they were on championship teams. What the hell does that have to do with the guy's talent? Yes, it can be the factor that he is a contributing factor to the team's success. But if he doesn't have good teammates, he's not winning championships. The teammates have to come through. They have to play well. And because he's lucky enough to be on a team that has better players than other teams, he's a better player and he gets more credit as a better player. That's BS. I hate it when I see that happening all the time. I mean, so, you know, Charles Barkley was a non-championship team, but does that make him less better, less a player than somebody else who's been on championship teams? No, it really doesn't. So, right. yeah, I mean, that's just, the, that's just the life of sports and everybody's entitled, again, to their, their uneducated opinion. The, the other question that pops into one's mind when they see Rick Barry is the revolution that you brought about in joining the ABA. Um, you were a pro athlete. You were entitled to think of yourself as a professional, earning money, and clearly something happened that was hard for you to turn away from at the start of the ABA and the offer you were made by the Oakland Oaks. Talk to us a little bit about, was it difficult to make that decision? Was it difficult to, to, to stay with the ABA? Did you ever regret the decision to go there? Uh, talk a little about that that really historic time in basketball. Well, you have to understand, I, I can talk and you just asked me three different things. So I can probably talk for the next 20 minutes about that. <laughs> um, basically, it was not about money. It, was, it had nothing to do with money. I always loved the game of basketball. 
And here we came within two pick and roll plays with Wilt Chamberlain involved from the 76ers and Nate Thurman, my great teammate, God rest his soul, from the Warriors. And if it went our way on those pick and rolls, we could have won the championship in six games against one of the greatest teams in the history of the league. And I didn't have fun. I led the league in scoring. I was MVP of the All-Star game. And it wasn't a, a lot of fun for me because our coach got, and I liked him, and God rest his soul as well, Bill Sharman, who's no longer with us. Bill Sharman took the fun out of the game for me. We hardly had any time off. He's the one that started the morning shoot around, which I think is the biggest waste of energy ever. Uh, and it turned in from going with your sneaks on and jeans just to get you out of bed, which I knew the reason was. But hey, I can do that. Just take me to a room in the hotel. Let's talk about what we have. Get me out of bed. Why do I want to go over and go to a gym and shoot around, especially if we're not even going to the gym that we play in? It was something he did, and he required us to do that, and I hated it with like a passion. And I wish I could have been as because I was a young player at the time, but Will Chamberlain, a veteran later on when Bill left and coached the, <laughs> coached the Los Angeles Lakers, had the greatest thing ever, and I wish I could have done it. He said to Bill, he said, Bill, here's the deal. I'm going to show up one time at the arena. Do you want me at 10 in the morning or 7 at night? <laughs> and, and that's kind of the way that I felt. Why do I want to, at 10 o'clock in the morning or 9 o'clock in the morning, to expend one ounce of energy when I know I'm going to play 40-something minutes that night and the travel was tough. We didn't have chartered planes. We'd get to bed at 2 in the morning, wake up at 5.30 or 6 to catch the first commercial flight to the next city. I mean, it was such a different world. To make us use any energy at all made no sense whatsoever to me. And so that was, that was a difficult thing uh, about that. So anyway, uh, I, I just, I don't know. It, it's... I'm not a hard guy to get along with. I think if you actually go out and do your job, I'm a hard guy to get along with if you don't do your job. I'm going to be very demanding. I mean, I was, here's the thing. I was a captain one time only in my career, and that was the year we won the championship because I took on the responsibility. I felt I had a much greater responsibility than going out and being responsible for what I did on the court. I had a responsibility as captain to try to get our team to play better. And so I took that very seriously, and we won the championship. And so I guess maybe they should have made me captain a lot sooner than that. It would have been a good idea because I get motivated. About and I even had to do things one way, which is to give everything I have to what I do. And, you know, that I could get you into a political story about that when I was told, hey, Rick, you should run for office. I said, what are you, crazy? I'm playing ball. Well, you don't have to be there. I said, what? I don't have to be there. <laughs> I, mean, like, that was, I was like, so I, that was ludicrous. And that made me hate politics even more. But uh, well, that's a whole other story. So, yeah. So that's just the way that I approach things. And I try to go out and be the best that I could be. Every time I put my uniform on, I can honestly say that only one quarter of one game ever in my professional career, and probably in my amateur career as well, that I wasn't mentally ready to go out and play and give everything I had in, in that one quarter of basketball. And I was so upset myself after that. I vowed to never allow it to happen again. And I accomplished that. In the early days of basketball, in the early days of your career, you often were playing before small crowds, the, 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 especially in the ABA days. Um, and my question about, because you just really talked about the essence, I think, of the elite athlete, which is the self-motivation. Did you play mostly for the challenge of the game for yourself, or did you see yourself also as an entertainer to bring joy to the fans in the stands, or was it a combination of them? Well, on the road, I try to destroy their night. I wanted to ruin their night. I want to bring joy to them. <laughs> so, and, and I'm going to get back to answer something else because I didn't finish because you asked me a, a multiple choice question, not a multiple choice, but a number of other questions about things as far as uh, 
That's what's concerned. I was Kurt Flood before Kurt Flood. Everybody makes this big deal about Kurt Flood challenging the reserve clause. That's what I did years before him. Yes. The clause yes. in the NBA contract was the exact same clause they had in the baseball contract. Basically, a contract of perpetuity. You sign that first contract, you're obligated to that team forever. They let's come back you. to that. Let, yeah. Rick, let's come back to that because we're going to take a break. And I think we're on a roll here as far as some really important things about what really makes the elite athlete tick. And, and really, we've had a number of great athletes on. There's nobody more elite than the, our guest today, Rick Berry. This is Gary Stern and Lucy saying we'll be right back. This is Daryl Wayne here to talk to you about the co-creator and co-host of After the Glory, Woodland Hills lawyer Gary Stern. When Gary's not talking to elite athletes, you can usually find him doing what he's been doing for almost 45 years, navigating the world of government. As a college student and young professional, Gary helped folks deal with federal and state agencies through his work as a caseworker with a local congressman and state senator. That work prepared Gary for a career as a consumer lawyer. Today, Gary still helps people in all walks of life, but his passion nowadays is his service as a mediator, mostly in cases like the ones he's been handling for over four decades, where people have been injured in accidents or in connection with their employment. You can learn more about Stern Law, the law offices of Gary N. Stern at his website, www.sternlaw.org. That's S-T-E-R-N. Or you can call him at 818-710-2717. That's 818-710-2717. Raise your game to a higher degree. Educating industry professionals since 1991, the University of San Francisco has established itself as one of the leading sport management master's programs in the world. Our locations in San Francisco and Orange County give students access to two of the largest sport markets. Earn a master's degree in 23 months from industry leading faculty and join a community of over 2,500 alumni and students. Learn more and apply today at usfca.edu forward slash SM. Go Dons! And we're back on After the Glory. This is Gary Stern with my partner Lucy Sang and our very special guest, NBA and ABA and uh, College Hall of Famer, Rick Berry. Rick, we were talking about that notion about athletics, uh, particularly at the professional level, where there's the challenge of the game, the individual challenge, the challenge of being a consummate teammate and entertainment for the crowd, uh, especially in those days when there was two, 3,000 people in the stands. How did you see the sport? How did you see your role uh, in, in, in those aspects of, of being an elite athlete? There's only, the main thing that I focused on is I, I played to win. I hated losing. So my whole thing is that my dad taught me to always give your best effort in everything you do. And when I put that uniform on, you were going to get everything I had every time I put that uniform on. And I'm going to try my best to play as well as I can play and hopefully win the basketball game. And I was never happy when we lost. And, you know, I would rather play poorly and win than have a great game and lose. There are some guys that are happy to play great and lose and they don't care because they played great. That wasn't me. Uh, my whole drive was behind winning and and that's why i played i have you know i've just awarded three different rings championship ring hall of fame ring top 50 ring the only ring that i ever wear is my my and not that there's anything wrong i mean i'm proud to be a hall of famer and proud to be a top 50 player that's a great honor but that's kind of like you know putting stuff on top of the cake you got i always equate it to 
you can all of the things that go on a cake icing you know cherries to design candles whatever take them all and put them on a plate without a cake it looks like a big mess you know <laughs> but you got to have the cake you know and i'm lucky enough to have the cake and i got a lot of stuff to put on it which is kind of cool so it's a pretty nice decorative cake and that's how i equate it to it and that's why i the only ring that i wear i don't have it on right now because it's getting so worn out i don't wear it as much i just you know wear it at different times but i used to wear it every day um very proud of that and i was always shocked when i would see other players and all who were on championship teams and i don't see them wearing their championship ring why would you not be proud of having been a part of something so special as being knowing that you were on a team that was the best there is on a professional level in the sport that you were playing. So that's what it was all about for me. Um, you know, if I, I'm sure I entertained some people and I, 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 you know, got a lot of people PO'd at me probably as well. And hated <laughs> um, the thing about it is I love booze because if you're not any good, they don't boo you. True. <laughs> Very true. Rick, you may or may not know there's a common thing amongst the three of us on this show right now. We all have suffered some type of knee injury and, you know, talking about winning, your career has probably been impacted by your knee injury. However, it seems like you still won even after you came back from taking some time off. Can you tell us more about how just overall injuries has impacted your athletic career and possibly, you know, after the glory days of sports as well? Well, um, I was very fortunate that uh, it didn't really deter my career. Uh, I had a cartilage injury back in those days you had to have a regular surgery to cut you open they didn't have arthroscopic surgery mm-hmm. and so you were out for for months um you don't know whether or not it's going to continue to function and work fortunately it wasn't ligaments uh, and it was certainly not a cruciate which could be really bad or an achilles or something back in those days which was career ending um and so i had to overcome that it was it was mentally it was a difficult thing to do and i had two of well, I got one, I got back, I played and I had another one both in the ABA. And so I never knew whether or not I was going to be able to continue to play and play at the level that I was playing. Um, I also did something stupid in my second year, which they would never allow to happen, is that in the finals against the, the 76ers, I had gotten a really bad sprained ankle in the previous series against the St. Louis Hawks. And um, no, it wasn't the Hawks that I played. Anyway, whoever it was, I, f- I forget right now. But bottom line, I had a really bad sprained ankle, and I couldn't play without getting shot up. I got numbed up before the game and at halftime to play. And and I set a record that lasted for decades and decades. I always say, geez, what would I have been able to do if I actually was healthy and had an ankle that could you know actually function the way it should have functioned and average over 40 points a game? And, um, you know, it was broken by Michael Jordan. And the only reason he broke it in the six-game series is that he had an overtime game and scored like eight <sighs> points in the overtime. Without that, I'd still be first doing that. Not that I care about those records, but I've learned more about things that I accomplished in my career in the last few years because everybody's into analytics. They're into statistics. It just, I, I just popped up the other day when, when uh, Giannis wound up scoring like 40 points or something, and there's my name up there as a guy that had 40 points in his first three finals games. I mean – all this crazy stuff pops up and I didn't even have any idea I did those things. I mean, seriously, because I didn't pay any attention to that. All I wanted to do was win. I just went out to play as hard as I could play as well as I could play. And that's the way I approached it. But the injuries fortunately did not deter me from playing well. I probably would have been better. I had to adapt my game. I used to be, uh, I used to go to the basket, just relentless. I was just, I tacked 
I wanted to get fouled. I wanted to get to the free throw line because my style, I was a great free throw shooter. I got better and better. I actually was better at the end of my career than the beginning. I still think I'm the best free throw shooter that's ever played because my last six years, my last six years, I changed my technique and I had so many free throws. I used to shoot over 10 early in my career. I still shot in the high eighties, but when I, and then when I shot in the last six years, I shot over 92% and over 94% my last two years. And nobody's had a career average or an average of over 92%. So I still think that had I shot that way with the refinement I made to my dad's technique, I would have put up some unbelievable numbers. I was always mad that I never made a hundred or more free throws consecutively in games. I had the record for a long time at 60, but see, cause free throws is the only part of the game. You can be selfish and help your team. If you're selfish in any other part of the game, you could be a detriment to your team. And I never Rick, wanted I, to be a detriment. But. Rick, I want to make sure that we don't forget this important point, but I want to ask the question from a different perspective. Take a minute, two minutes before we go to break. The underhand style became legendary. The proof is in the pudding, 90% shooting that way. Why the hell didn't other players adopt your style? I have no idea. I mean, it's their ego or whatever it is. And everybody call it a granny shot. And they say, oh, well, everybody make fun of me. First of all, if you're shooting 30, 40, 50%, they're making fun of you now. They think you're a joke. <laughs> So why in the world would you not want to try anything, anything at all within the rules to get better? I mean, I, how do you live with yourself if you can't make four out of every five free throws? If you're not an 80% free throw shooter, I'm sorry, you're not a good free throw shooter. You're mediocre. You're average. That 80%, come on, you get to miss one out of every five shots that you take and you're shooting 80%, same size ball, same size basket, same distance every single time. You should be embarrassed if you can't make 80% of your free throws. All right, but okay, when we come back, I wanna finish that point. I have a theory that you alluded to it just now, that they did not feel it was manly, and I think they're full of crap because that shot is, is the most amazing consistent shot that I ever saw in, in, in my youth growing up watching basketball. I thought, this is incredible. The guy doesn't miss, and he's shooting underhand, for God's sakes. When we come back after the glory, more with our friend Rick Barry. This is Gary Stern and Lucy Sang. We'll be back. Role models, they can make all the difference. In our world today, they have never been more important. One of the nation's most successful mentoring organizations is Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of Los Angeles. Their mission is to assist youth in achieving their full potential through innovative and impactful programs. And no nonprofit agency does it better. Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of LA serves Jewish children, boys and girls in our local community with a mentoring program that's been going strong since 1915. That's only the beginning. This nationally known agency owns and operates Camp Bob Waldorf. Its summer camping and weekend retreat programs enrich the lives of youth throughout greater Los Angeles. Then there's a college support program, and last but not least, work that helps kids all over the world through the Teen Talk app. Want to learn more? Go to jbbbsla.org. Donate. Get involved. There's no better way to make a difference. And we're back on After the Glory. Gary Stern here with Lucy Seng and our special guest, Rick Berry. Rick, we want to cover a few other subjects uh, real quick. And, and the most obvious one is this. After the Glory is designed to celebrate the athlete because there's something about the elite athlete that makes them elite that also gives them that ability 
to have a meaningful and purposeful life after the time on the court is over. 1980 and, and, its, and its retirement, uh, you eventually went into coaching. You did a number of other things. I noticed that you won the world long drive competition in 2005. Um, tell us about life after basketball. Was it hard? Was it hard to come away from playing regularly? And how did you adapt to the rest of your life? It's been over 40 years, obviously, since your last game. Yeah, well, it was uh, it, it was easy for me only because of the fact that I have the ability to do something that I found that most people don't have the ability to do, which is compartmentalize things, put things on the back burner. People ask me, do you miss basketball? And I would say no, and they look strangely at me. And I say, yeah, no. And the reason is because is I never think about it. Why would I want to think about the fact that I can't do something that I love so much? I'd be depressed. So I never thought about it. I just didn't think. I'd get focused on other things. I studied and did stuff and was prepared. So I did broadcasting for years. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to learn about long driving and golf because I, I missed what I missed is I missed the adrenaline flow. I missed the butterflies in the stomach to go out and to compete and put yourself in front of people. And with the possibility of failure and to have that challenge, I just really missed that tremendously. And then, you know, of course, when I thought about it, I, I, I love playing basketball and I miss not playing it, but I tried not to think about that at all. And so I did the golf. I actually won four world long driving championships. Uh, I, they cut those divisions out because they weren't going to get rid of all the old farts. And, uh, but I had great success with that. It was great fun. And then I, I've gotten into pickleball and so on fly fishing and fly fishing is a sport, but it's not competition. It's just that I love the sport. It's something, it's an art form and I love doing that. And it's a challenge. And now I'm into pickleball. And uh, my goal was when I started into pickleball, this is my third year playing. My goal was to win some national championships. I won two gold, two gold divisions in the U S open. Uh, and, and I love it. And I just, always like to have things to challenge me uh, athletically and, and mentally so and physically. So that's kind of what I did. And you need to be prepared to do something else in life. I mean, you know, sitting around and feeling sorry for you because I can't play basketball anymore would be ridiculous. I mean, um, I was blessed. I, would, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I just wish I was born 10 years later so that they would have had those three extra zeros on my contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, even though you're not on the court as a basketball player anymore, you have been coaching lately. Tell us more about that. What's on your shirt right now, though our listeners can't see it, the Big Three League. What, what is your participation? Tell us about the league itself. Yeah, well, big you know, big three was for, was actually created. Uh, one of the owners, obviously, is Ice Cube, the great uh, you know the rapper and singer and and uh, actor, and Jeff Quantnet started it up, uh, much to my delight. It's given me an opportunity to get to be around a, a lot of my contemporaries. You know, Dr. J as a coach with George Gervin, guys that I got to play with, Gary Payton, I didn't get to play against, but a, a lot of a lot of great names are involved. Michael Cooper, I can go on and on. Uh, it, it's very competitive. Uh, this will be our fourth year. We had, we had, of course, no season last year because of COVID. Uh, but it's going to be very competitive this year. I have uh, different players on my team. I don't get to pick my players. The captains get to pick the players. And they pick a lot of times they pick their friends and what have you. <laughs> and so I just try to do the best I can coaching the people that I have. And uh, we got off to a good start this year. I have Leandro Barbosa, who played absolutely awesome. He's still amazingly quick at 39 years of age. Yeah, so it's it's been fun. And we have another game coming up. And all throughout the summer, we'll be playing. So uh, it's been great. And as I said, it's crazy. I, I make more money doing that, coaching one time a week that I made in the first three years playing full seasons of the NBA. That's how insane it is. And, uh, of course, I didn't make a lot of money back in those days. So it's not like I paid dollars to do this. But it's a hell of a lot more than I, I made 
Oh, but I, I love it. I really enjoy it. And it's been so great to, to my family and to me. And I, I love the game. Uh, I don't like what I see happening. I don't really like the way a lot of teams play. Too much one-on-one -on -one for me. Um, call me a purist, call me whatever you like. I'm actually somebody who plays the game the way I think the game was designed to be played, where it's more fun to play it. It's more fun to watch it for me. Uh, watching all this one-on-one -on -one stuff and all is not something that I find uh, enjoyable, to be honest with well, you. Well, here, here, I couldn't agree more. And uh, as we wrap up on this edition, there's one other subject that I think it, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about. Uh, there are a lot of people who played the game, Rick, but there's only really, truly, one first family of the game of basketball. Do the names Brent Berry, John Berry, Drew Berry, Scooter Berry, and Canyon Berry mean anything to you? Well, you want to throw Canyon Berry in there as well. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. Why I not? Why not? He plays too. Yeah, well, you know, but as good as my other boys, uh, and he should be in the NBA, but he's not, which is beyond my comprehension as to why. He, um, I mean, he just got done unfortunately he got tweaked his he was on the world championship 3x3 team he got chosen to represent the united states it's the only gold medal they had never won and um and he played really well in that championship and then he was getting ready right out and compete for the olympics to make the olympics and uh tweaked his back at the last minute they replaced him and then did not finish in third or better and they didn't qualify so he missed out on that and missed out on a chance to be a part of that and just got back from paris playing again and they won the tournament over there he was SEC sixth man of the year should have been a starter, but he was the sixth man of the year and just never been given the chance. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, I, one day I may do a documentary on what's happening because everybody talks about all these coaches who are so wonderful and did all these wonderful things for all these players. And I'm going to do a documentary and let these guys tell the stories about the coaches who really screwed up their careers. And trust me, there's a whole bunch of them out there. So not every coach is as great as he's right. made out to be. Yeah, so it's a whole different story, but I have great sons who. Uh, but tell who us about tell, tell us about your boys, though. Tell us tell us about how, how did all of them. Well, I exposed them to the game, I and mean, you're a product of your environment when you grow up. They were exposed to basketball. Every one of my boys, you know, except for Canyon, because I was done playing, were ball boys. They, they would they would take you know naps, pregame meals, go to the games, suit up as ball boys, be there. I mean, how many fathers are lucky enough to take their kids to work with them? You know, I mean, they get they went to they went to work. Yeah. And it wasn't work. Yeah, I mean, but they got to go with me when I went to play basketball at home. In fact, if they did well in school, I would take them on a, on a trip one time because I allow those nights to do it. I take them on a trip and let them be ball boys on a road trip one time. So uh, it was kind of cool. And to have five boys, all five of them get Division One college scholarships. All five of them play professional basketball. The odds on that are just so astronomical. It's just ridiculous. And so, but you know, I, I, the only credit I take for him is I did what my father did for me. I them the fundamentals of the game. They came to the camps, they were there, they learned the fundamentals. I, you know, learning how to shoot the basketball. My youngest son, Canyon, uh, who, who didn't, you know, wasn't a ball boy. My wife is an all American now basketball player. And so she helped him tremendously. Uh, I mean, my son, he's so brilliant. I mean, honors college got his degree in physics, has a master's in nuclear engineering. My wife and son, which is so proud of, the only mother and son in the history of NCAA Division I basketball to have a mother and her son, two-time first-team academic All-Americas, and my son was the academic oh, All-America player here in yeah. the last year. Oh, my. And Amazing. So, uh, he knows the game, and the fact that he's not getting a chance to play is just – you know, I, I, I just don't understand it because when I talk about my kids, people have to understand this. I don't talk about them as their father. I talk about them when it comes to basketball because I know basketball. I know who can play, who can't play. If my sons couldn't play, I would say my son's not very good, but my son is really good. 
and he would help a lot of teams and somebody could get him for a minimum contract and he'd be better for him than guys making five, six, seven million dollars a year, major weaknesses in their game, don't understand the game as well as he does, and he would never, ever be a problem. So anyway, that's what it is. And I, I don't meddle. I wish I probably wished that I was more like Mr. Ball and what he did for his kids. <laughs> I should have promoted the hell out of my sons and I didn't do that. And, uh, and it's wound up, you know, it's wound up probably hurting two of my boys. My son, Scooter, should have been in, in the NBA. I had three in the NBA. Scooter was the last cup by the Boston Celtics. And Larry Bird and Kevin McHale said, Rick, your son was better than our number one pick and should have made our team. But unfortunately, back then, they only had 12-man rosters. Now they have 15-man rosters with two guys who are two-way guys. If that were the case, my son, Scooter, would have been in the NBA as well because he was a really good player. Um, mm -hmm. And then my son Canyon should be there as well. So I just feel badly for them because I think they're being deprived of an opportunity. And I hate seeing anybody being deprived of opportunities if they have the talent to do it. Because I love greatness in anything. I love somebody who's great at what they do. I have great respect and admiration for them. And I think it's a shame when you have some people who have a lot of talent who just aren't in the right place at the right time and they get shortchanged. And that happens a lot in all walks of life, unfortunately. Well. We're, we're going to wrap up our episode uh, with Rick Barry by saying this. There, is, there are a lot of people who have sons, who, 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 uh, uh, guys who played in all the sports. There are just very few who obviously had the passion and the ability and the desire to expose their kids to the best of what they do. And then they, in turn, wanted to be like dad. I think it's an incredible story. I don't think it gets enough attention in this country. Uh, what 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 they have, what the Berry family has accomplished. Um, I think it's it's outrageous that Rick, uh, among the top 50 players, has not gotten more attention for all that he did for the game. Uh, Lucy, I've got enough. That's all I want to say. Take it away. I, as a basketball lover myself, and I had just shared intimately with my co-host that I have a tattoo somewhere called Love and Basketball. I'm just so grateful for this opportunity to cross paths with Rick Barry and look forward to the rest of uh, basketball history to come. Good night, everybody. Lucy and I hope you enjoyed this edition of After the Glory. As we leave you until next time, we want to thank our team, our producer, Mark Allen, executive producer from Podclips, Mike Anderson, and our sound engineer and editor, the insane Daryl Wayne. We are also grateful for music by T. Dan Hofstad. And as we close out this episode of After the Glory, we honor our guest with our theme song, written and sung by my brother in baseball, T. Dan, the master of music from the islands and the slack key guitar. Until next time, stay safe, healthy, and athletic. Living the dream on a shooting star. Hometown crowd cheering what you are. Living large and riding high. Razzling and dazzling across the sky. Back in the day, so young and strong. Work or play, you can do no wrong. When that fight is through, what you gonna do? Hey, hey, what's your story? What you gonna do after the glory? Step back and take inventory.